0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. The UK has the highest inflation of any major economy, and markets expect the Bank of England to keep hiking interest rates in
1: response. But how high could rates go? Will mortgages become unaffordable? I want to know whether there'll be a recession and if house prices could crash. And in today's dumb question of the week, why do central banks raise interest rates incrementally rather than in one big jump? All right, let's get into it. So, Roman, it's actually been quite a long time since we talked about the housing market and interest rates, which is probably really stupid because there always are most listened to episodes.
0: (laughs) But we don't want to become the kind of house price podcast, do we? No, that's just what
1: the audience wants. That's what English people want.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There is a kind of fixation on house prices in the UK. You know, people just think it's a surefire investment and it's always going to be great, but it's really hard to convince them that's not the case. I think people
1: thought that maybe they're becoming a little less sure of themselves now.
0: But it's funny, even talking to Laura, you know, I talked to her and she said, oh, I had a house and it increased, you know, 50, 100 percent during the period I had it. But we always remember the kind of surges and we forget the long term trend.
1: It's certainly something that's been passed down from my parents' generation was, you know, they bought houses in the trough of the late 80s, early 90s, and then retired early when it went up threefold. I bought this house for £2,000. Yeah, and a marathon bar. It's a Snickers now, come (laughs) on. (laughs) But I guess the reason it's now forefront of everyone's minds is that interest rates are rising. I'm sure no one's missed that fact, especially if you have a mortgage. But I guess before we get into the question of how high rates could go, let's just discuss why they are rising to begin with?
0: Well, primarily this is to do with the Bank of England and monetary policy, which is in turn to do with inflation. And if inflation is high, the Bank of England is going to raise interest rates. The point there is that they're trying to slow down the economy, reduce demand and also slow down wage growth, which turns out is very important. And that way,
1: hopefully inflation will come down. At least that's the economic theory. So the last inflation print in the UK was 8.7%. That's the headline CPI number. And that's way above the 2% target. And I think more significantly, it's now above every other sort of comparable economy in the world. So though inflation wasn't a UK-specific problem, it now seems it's stickier in the UK than elsewhere.
0: And that's for a number of reasons. You know, it's not all to do with Brexit, but partly it's to do with Brexit. If you restrict the labour pool, then that's going to be inflationary because people can demand higher wages if they have less competition for jobs. So I think that's definitely been one of the factors. Also, there's much more friction with trade now, and trade is more expensive.
1: And our trade is still dominated by trade with Europe. But it's not just Brexit, is it? It's the structural issues in the UK economy where we're a massive importer of energy. And obviously, we had the energy spike following the war in Ukraine. though that is now starting to subside.
0: Yep, and our energy policy is pretty poor, pretty shabby. You know, we should have become more energy independent more quickly. It is happening. We are becoming more energy independent. We're shifting towards renewables. But then there was also the kind of supply chain issues that were layered on top of all the other crises.
1: That was certainly the impulse to begin with, wasn't it? It was energy and supply chain issues. But now it's all about wages and wage growth. So annual wage growth in the U.K. was 7.2 percent in April, and that's up from 6.8 percent in the previous reading. That's the highest reading on record, excluding the COVID period, where things went a bit weird. And you know, on the face of it, it might sound a good thing, right? For workers, our wages are growing seven percent a year, but it means inflation's going to be high in that situation.
0: Also, we have a productivity problem where we're not producing more stuff per unit time, we haven't done for a long time, and our productivity growth hasn't matched other developed countries. So all of those combined have produced a pretty poor growth outlook for the UK, but also a very sticky
1: inflation problem. And I think when the Bank of England talks about sticky inflation, which they're now having to do a lot, they look at core inflation, don't they, which strips out the food and the energy, the volatile prices. And when you look at core inflation, it actually increased from 6.2% in March to 6.8% in April.
0: And core inflation is still accelerating upwards. So that's a real problem for the Bank of England. If you look at comparable data from the US, there what you see is that inflation, core inflation has fallen a bit, but it hasn't really fallen a lot. And it's kind of stabilised at a certain number now. At least it's not
1: accelerating upwards.
0: (laughs) That's right. But this wage problem, and it's odd to talk about it as a problem, but it is, is going to have to go away before core inflation falls that's not going to be pleasant and i think the other point is that for a decade we haven't seen real wage growth in the uk expecting people to take another cut in real wages is just unreasonable i think
1: they are taking a cut in real wages though we've talked about wage growth being strong but in real terms it's about -2%
0: but the difficulty now is that it'll have to fall even more wage growth in order to get core inflation to slow down so it's going to be very painful there's just no question about it and that usually comes with a great deal of economic pain individual pain and then of course we have this housing crisis potentially which you have to
1: layer on top and the other component here is that the unemployment rate is super low so that's just 3.8% which is a rate we haven't seen for about half a century and there's over 1 million job vacancies in the UK so to use the economist speak it's a tight labor market very 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 tight particularly in certain sectors
0: and i think the difficulty is going to be fixing that structural problem. How do you get enough people into the country in order to service the jobs? Or you can get people out of retirement to do the jobs. A lot of people are now sick in the UK, long-term sick. That number's increased a lot. And that means labour force participation, that's the number of people who could potentially work, who do work, is very low compared to recent history.
1: Yeah, and the other option is the Bank of England wax up interest rates so much It sends companies out of business, it depresses hiring, and the unemployment rate just goes up. We don't get more people, but we just get more unemployed. Yeah, it's a very difficult situation for everybody,
0: including the Bank of England. Look, they don't want to do this. They don't want to cause the pain. They get a lot of the brunt of the hatred, I think, because they're the ones that are seen as causing the problem. But it's really not their problem. It it hasn't been created by the Bank of England.
1: I saw someone say it was like getting mad at the plumber for trying to fix your broken boiler.
0: It's exactly true. That's a great analogy. I think it's true. Andrew Bailey is a plumber. I could see that, actually.
1: You like Andrew Bailey now.
0: Didn't I hear you say that? Yeah, I'm warming to him. I don't know what's going on. It's some kind of Stockholm Syndrome thing, you know. I just look at him and I think, oh, he's not so bad. I
1: don't know why you warm to him. It's because he made a self-depreciating joke about eating pasties every day or something.
0: That was funny. <laughs> <laughs> he said he's been visiting Greg's and uh, looking at me, you may not be surprised by that.
1: Yeah, because he was trying to track inflation, right? Yeah. He was trying to just measure pasty costs, <laughs> sausage roll costs. <laughs> you can't say he's not got his finger on the pulse. I mean, Andrew Bailey's looking at lots of different things, isn't he? Sausage roll prices, for sure, we know that. But also wages, I guess that's the big one he's looking at. And we found that in the UK markets, after the latest wage inflation print, which is, you know, ridiculously high, gilt yields jumped, didn't they?
0: Yeah, and the thing about gilt yields is that they have an additional dimension, which you don't have for stock markets, which is time. So how long is the government borrowing for? So that's where the yield curve comes from. The short end of the curve very much reflects Bank of England rate policy. If the Bank of England raises interest rates, then those short-term rates increase. Often they increase in anticipation of what the Bank of England's going to do.
1: I guess that's what was happening this time.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's kind of new. That didn't used to happen. People are actually listening to the Bank of England, which is also new. (laughs) Nobody really cared before, but now I've noticed that people do care.
1: And they really did shoot up after this labor market data. So it was the sharpest sell off since the mini budget last year when things really did go crazy. And two year guilt yields are now just shy of 5%. So last time I looked, it was 4.95%, which is their highest level since July 2008. So it's kind of gone in a U shape. So 2008, it was very high. It
0: was above five. It was almost at six. Then it tumbled in the global financial crisis. It's been close to zero for ages. And now over the last year or so, it's shot back up. So big, flat, U-shaped value of pain. What's the significance
1: of this rate? It's the amount it costs the UK government to borrow for two years. But, you know, who cares? What does that matter to anyone's real life?
0: Oh, I care. See, I salivate when I see that. Because (laughs) what's weird at the moment is that very short-term interest rates are very high. And that means that you can buy those bonds, earn the 5%, lock it in, So even if rates fall, you're going to carry on getting that. If rates rise, you're going to have a bit of FOMO. But if you hold a single UK government bond, you don't care. You just hold it to maturity. You pocket the coupons and the capital gain, and you're done. And so I think that's the part that people forget, which is in this kind of environment, it really favours savers. So if you're someone who likes to invest in gilts, this is your heyday. It's great. Still negative yield, of course, in real terms, but still. Very good.
1: But even if you aren't a saver and don't invest in gilts, this rate affects you, especially if you're a borrower.
0: Yeah, not so good. If you're a borrower, of course, you know, you're going to feel that pain. And for millions of people in the UK, as they come off their fixed period of borrowing, this is going to be hugely problematic if they borrow too much. You know, I mean, it sounds really glib to say this, but you should always borrow considering what might happen to interest rates. Because if you borrow too much and you're over leveraged and rates increase a lot, then you know, you're gonna lose your house. And I think unfortunately that's gonna happen to many people.
1: I mean, the path of interest rates from here is critical, I guess, to a lot of people's lives. And what markets are currently pricing in is four more rate hikes from the Bank of England, which would take the bank rate up to five point seven five by the end of this year, and then even a small chance that it rises to six percent or higher early next year. So there's still some way to go, is what the market thinks. Whether that will be realised, I'm not sure.
0: And it's great if you do have some historical context, which in the UK, of course, we do, because the Bank of England's been around since 1694, and we've got interest rates going back all that time. And if you do look at the median interest rate over that period, it's 5%. And then if you look over the more recent period, since
1: about 1970, again, the median rate's about 5%. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people saying interest rates are going crazily high, but that's not really the context, is it? The context is the last decade, they've been crazily low and they're kind of reverting to mean. They're going back to what you expect interest rates to be like.
0: Mean reversion. You know, I mean, it's so boring to say it, but it's such an important thing to understand and have that historical context. And if you have that, you realise,
1: yeah, this is just going back to normal. And what we've seen over the last decade was really abnormal. Well, the housing market priced in low rates, I think. That's the problem for people. House prices went up to such a degree that a lot of people probably can't afford their mortgages if the bank rate goes to 6%.
0: I think that's true. And I think it's terrible in a way because this isn't just about money and investment. It's not an abstract thing. This is about people losing
1: their home. And that's terrible for the family itself. And I think it's worth saying that this isn't where people expected us to be, even just a short while ago. So if we rewind to May 2022, at that point, markets expected the Bank of England's bank rate to peak at just around 3%. That's what they thought the top of the cycle would be. Obviously, we'd love a 3% peak now. We're way above that already. In fact, if you look what John Cunliffe said at the time, he's the deputy governor for financial stability at the Bank of England. So at the time, when people were sort of panicking about rates going up to even just 3%, he said, don't worry, guys. And he tried to reassure the market that households aren't going to face debt distress unless rates go to 5% or higher. (laughs) So that's what he said at the time. And now it's like, oh, we're going there, aren't we?
0: I think we're definitely going there. And I think it's a problem because the way the Bank of England signaled all this stuff and the way it's talked to the public has been very poor. I think their communication has been stuck in the last century, really. You just get the feeling that they're a bit plummy and a bit distant, and they're not really in touch with what's going on. I don't think that's the case. I think they're very much aware of the pain and very dedicated to getting the situation under control. But that's just not how it comes across. They come across as very cold and very distant.
1: I mean, we'll see how it goes this week, because there's two really important things happening this week. On Wednesday, we're getting the next inflation data. Let's hope it's cooling. And then the next day on Thursday is the Bank of England's meeting where they announce what they're going to do with interest rates. Now, the expectation overwhelmingly is for a 25 basis points hike. That's 0.25 percentage points.
0: I'll be live streaming that evening. So I'm going to start doing these Bank of England runs. I've done one already and it got quite a few views. People are really interested in it now. But I agree. I think it's going to be a 25 basis point rate hike this time around. No question. They can't really get away with not doing that.
1: There'll probably be a few dissensions who want it to go up by 50 basis points, don't you think? Just to signal we're going to be tough on inflation.
0: Yeah, maybe. We also have a couple of people on the committee who are quite dovish. And their point is that monetary policy acts with a very long lag now because of the structural form of the UK mortgage market, which we can come on to. But that means that if policy acts with a lag, what you don't want is to hike, hike, hike really aggressively And then suddenly realise after the fact that you've overhiked and that you've tightened too much.
1: What, and you get a big recession.
0: Exactly. It's got too much of a cooling effect on the economy and inflation does come down. But there's a huge spike in unemployment. There's a big
1: fall in GDP growth. Yeah, so those dovish members of the committee are basically saying, we've done enough already, you just need to wait to see the effect. Yeah. And I was looking at the Bank of England's forecasts for inflation And what they said in May is that they don't expect inflation to drop to its 2% target until 2025 now. So that's a long time we're going to be with some high inflation. So
0: what this has really revealed, I think, is the models that we've got for inflation at the Bank of England, at the Fed, just don't work. That's not totally surprising. I don't think anyone's very surprised that economic models aren't very good, but What it does show is that this is a fairly unprecedented situation where the models just couldn't guess what human behavior would be. And the Bank of England made a point last time they had a meeting that they've overridden their model because what they think is going to happen is that people will see the cut in their wages. They'll see the cut in their profits for companies. And what they'll try and do is redress that by keeping their prices higher and demanding higher wage growth for longer in order to recoup those losses. And that makes inflation more sticky because it's got this kind of lag effect.
1: Yeah, it's quite a thing to announce, though, in the middle of an inflation spike that we've just thrown our model in the bin. But then they were way off consistently. Like if you look at the chart where it shows the revisions they've made to the model over the last year, the line just keeps going up each meeting. It goes up and up and up, which, you know, what's the point of a model that does that? It's not modelling anything. And I know that they have now commissioned an independent review into their modelling.
0: Yeah, But I think the best metaphor for these models is kind of like being a sailing ship in the 19th century. They didn't have radar. If there was a foggy day and they were close to rocks, people just had to lean over the side of the ship and just look out for
1: rocks and listen for rocks. Just go into Greg's and listen to the sausage roll. What are you (laughs) telling me, (laughs) roll?
0: But it's a little bit like that. You know, you don't really know what's going to happen. The best you can do is just look at that inflation line and try and guess where
1: it's going to go. But you say that's the best we can do. There's no point in that. Why go through all this game? Why not just say inflation is eight point whatever percent it is. Therefore, interest rates need to be somewhere up near that. Well, people have talked about having some kind of
0: mechanized policy where you just use something like a Taylor rule. It's called after John Taylor, who came up with the idea. What he found was that you can actually predict what the Fed does pretty closely based on just a couple of variables. But the problem there is that these things don't work. They would break down in extreme situations like the COVID crisis, where you have to cut rates, right? You might not think it's appropriate, but it's a huge systemic problem. So you have to cut rates and the model wouldn't see it because it wouldn't appear in the data quickly enough. There are a number of problems with a mechanized monetary policy. Humans can probably do a better job.
1: Yeah, but which humans? I mean, you often hear that monetary policy and interest rates are a blunt tool, right? They hit everyone with a mortgage, but don't hit people who own their home outright, for example. And shouldn't we all be sharing in this pain?
0: Well, I think Claudia Sam's got some interesting ideas here where if there is a huge recession or a huge shock to the economy, instead of cutting interest rates, what you could do is provide a kind of set of jobs for everybody who gets
1: laid off. A universal jobs guarantee, yeah, that's very popular at the moment on the left as an idea. But look, I think that's not really acceptable to many people. And it's not the situation we're in now, right? The implication of that when you're using fiscal policy rather than monetary policy is that when inflation goes really high, then you have to start raising taxes. And you have to start raising taxes on ordinary people because it's not Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk's spending that's causing inflation. It's all of our spending.
0: But with taxes, what you have is a huge amount of granularity. So let's say that you just tax luxury items. So fancy holidays, luxury products. Well, very poor people are not going to buy those things.
1: Yeah, but that's not what's causing the
0: inflation, is it? It's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is obviously things like services, prices being kept high. So you can also change corporate taxes and affect those as well. So if margins are too high... Maybe you could do
1: something about that. The problem here is kind of twofold if you went down this road. Is that one, putting this all in the hands of politicians makes it really susceptible to the political cycle in elections rather than independence, which you have with central banks. And also, you're halfway to a centrally planned economy when you're talking about really granular targeting of taxes on consumption and profit margins for different industries.
0: But we already have a centrally planned economy in many ways. You look at the subsidies which are given by many governments to their various industries. Look at the CHIPS Act in the United States. That's a centrally planned economy. You can call it what you like, but
1: it's not free markets. Yes, but we have to pretend that it's free markets, Robin, <laughs> and you, you can't pretend it with modern monetary theory. But I think this goes beyond MMT.
0: I think this is more a matter of having new ideas in a new situation. And I think what's pretty clear is that, like you say, having one monetary policy in the UK even is hugely inappropriate because essentially the UK is two countries. It's London and the rest of the country.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to say England and Scotland. No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's four countries. But if you just look at any aspect of any economic number at all, just choose anything. It could be wages. It could be house prices. It could be education. Anything you look at is completely different in the capital and the rest of the country.
1: And you see that as well in the Eurozone, where the differences between the German economy and the Southern European economies is stark. And is one interest rate appropriate for all those countries?
0: And the same in the US. You compare Mississippi with California. It's like two different countries. So I think that's the problem. Whereas with taxes, you can actually massage it in a much more nuanced fashion, in a much more granular fashion. But as you say, that's politics. Fiscal policy is politics. I think the two have to work hand in hand.
1: Okay. Romin, have you ever been in a flotation tank? No. Do you know what a flotation tank is? Yes. Because
0: I watched a film in the 80s called Altered States. So I'm all over flotation tanks.
1: I've not seen it, but I went in a flotation tank for the first time this week. My wife got me as a present for Christmas and the voucher was about to expire. So I like rushed to the flotation tank this week. I spent the first 20 minutes trying to work out where to put my arms, couldn't get comfortable. And then I spent the rest of the time trying to work out if I could explain the relationship between the bank rate, guilt yields and mortgage rates. They
0: told me it was meant to be relaxing. I would find that relaxing. That's the kind of thing I'd love to think about in a flotation tank. So there are four separate things at play here. So let's go through them one by one. The first one is monetary policy. This is the bank rate that affects short-term interest rates in the UK, and all short-term interest rates will be affected
1: by that rate. So the bank rate is what the Bank of England pays as interest for banks that park their money at the central bank.
0: Yeah, banks have to store their reserves at the Bank of England, and that's what you earn on reserves. And every other rate is piled on top of that risk-free rate. Then you've got gilts. So when the government borrows money by issuing bonds in the bond market, and I love to buy them, they pay you some rate of interest called the coupon. And that's locked in where they're issued. And different bonds with different maturities have different yields and different coupons. So that's the second rate, which is the yield on government bonds of a certain maturity.
1: And it has that second dimension, which is maturity. And the ones that are most affected by the bank rate are the short duration ones. Yeah. And the long end of the
0: curve is driven much more by expectations about growth and inflation, which indirectly are affected by short-term interest rates, but not directly. Usually when the short-term rates go up, the rest of the curve moves as well. But the highest correlation is between rates which are close together in terms of maturity. Then we get a third set of rates, and these are called interest rate swaps. But the idea here is that if you're a company or you're an investment bank or a hedge fund, and you want to swap a set of fixed cash flows for a set of variable cash flows that depend on the interest rate, variable interest rate, then what you'd do is you'd enter into one of these interest rate swaps. But effectively, these are a way of turning fixed rate lending into floating rate lending, or vice versa. Now, from the point of view of the banks, if they want to hedge their mortgages, what they don't want is to have interest rate sensitivity. We've already seen what happened to pension funds when there was that huge spike in interest rates. A lot of them hadn't hedged fully and they saw a really big catastrophic fall in the value of their bonds.
1: So is the risk here to a bank, if you've lent out money to mortgage borrowers at, I don't know, 2 or 3% and then the interest rates from the Bank of England go up to 5 or 6%, you're in trouble. So you're trying to hedge out that risk. Exactly.
0: And they have a huge interest rate risk if they don't hedge. So, as soon as you enter into a two year fixed rate deal, the bank will be hedging out that risk. They'll aggregate it, so it'll be on all of the mortgages they issue. But that's why your rate, your fixed rate for two years, for five years, is essentially just read off the swap curve with a bit of margin for the bank. So, from their point of view, they've got no interest rate risk. They have quite small credit risk because effectively they own the house, it's collateralized. And they make a pretty small margin, to be fair, on each of those mortgages. But that's how they price them. That's where the rates are coming from when you fix your mortgage. It's very little to do
1: with the bank. It's much more to do with the swaps market. And so your mortgage rate is kind of determined by the swap rate. And what's the swap rate actually sensitive to? Well, it's sensitive
0: to how many companies are hedging with swaps. So if there's lots of corporate bond issuance, that will affect the swap rates a lot. But certainly the yields on government bonds will affect it too. The rate will be very similar to the gilt yield with a similar maturity. It won't be exactly the same because you are taking some counterparty risk with these, which you are with the gilts. So usually the yield will be a little bit higher than it would be for equivalent
1: gilts. So it sounds like there's a kind of waterfall. The Bank of England looks at inflation and determines the bank rate. That kind of sets short-term gilt yields with a bit of anticipation from the market. And then interest rate swaps look at those short-term gilt yields and they have a bit of credit risk in there or whatever. And then mortgage rates look at those interest rate swaps and again, price in a bit of credit risk and everything else. So it's kind of this waterfall of interest rates. Is that
0: kind of right? Yeah, it's like a cake where you've got the risk-free rate to the bottom and then you just layer in risks as you go further out. So you've got duration risk, which you add if you add maturity. You've got credit risk if you've got mortgages, for example. And then on top of that, with some mortgages, if you've got a very high loan to value, if you're borrowing a larger percentage of your house's value, that's a bigger risk to the bank, and that'll
1: add an extra bit of interest cost to the borrower. Why couldn't you've been in the flotation tank with me? We're just saving all this time. <laughs> <laughs> so let's look at what the market is expecting for mortgage rates. So it's now pricing in two-year fixed rates to peak at significantly over six percent, something like six and a quarter percent. Five-year fixes to peak at around 5.5%, and this is all towards the end of this year. And the floating rate loans, if you have to be on one of those, to go up to 6.5% early next year. So that's a massive jump from where we were just 18 months ago, right?
0: And I think that's the problem. I think it's the shock. People don't realise how much it's going to affect them. If you're coming off a fixed rate that was less than 2%, which is what most people had, certainly less than 25 If you're jumping to six and a bit, that's a terrible increase in the payments that you have to
1: make. And maybe if you've never had a mortgage before, you look at it and go, is it really that bad going from two and a half to six? They're both small numbers. But you've got to think about six is 300% larger than two when it comes to your interest payments. That's not the total mortgage payment because you've got the repayment of principal, but it's a massive jump in your monthly outgoings.
0: And that's going to be a problem for many people. That's going to have a negative impact on spending in the UK, there's no question. So if you're in a business in the UK which relies on discretionary spending, and here we're talking about leisure primarily, but also
1: luxury goods, then you could be in trouble. The Resolution Foundation have done some fantastic work on this. And they calculated that based on current market expectations, mortgage payments, if you aggregate and total them up for the whole UK economy, they're projected to rise by around £16 billion compared with before this interest rate hiking cycle started. And what's interesting is that almost two-thirds of that rise is still to come. This is the lag effect we talk about. So people have fixed for two to five years or whatever it might be. So rates have gone up a lot already, but most of that effect has not been felt yet.
0: And if you look around you, I mean, in the UK right now, I mean, I just walk around walking Teddy, and, you know, I'd look at the stuff in the financial news, you can see that there hasn't been a big impact in terms of people going out and spending money. If you go to a restaurant, it's still full. If you go to London, for example, you're not seeing places really suffering because people are cutting back on spending, not yet. But I think that probably will happen. And I think there's a really interesting survey from the Office for National Statistics, and it looks at home ownership in 2021 using the census data And what it shows is that about a third of households, that's 8.1 million households in the UK, owned the accommodation they lived in outright. So these are people who are completely rate insensitive. You know, they can see this as an opportunity, I guess. If they see house prices fall, they could move to another house with a bit
1: more room. And also, as you say, maybe they're getting more return on their savings. So maybe their spending power is going to go up, assuming the inflation comes down.
0: That's right. And so I think for those people, they're in a brilliant position. Because they have been cautious, presumably in the past, in order to pay off their mortgages. Unfortunately, I think what this does is it increases the divide between the wealthy and usually the old, let's be honest, and the young, which in the UK has just got wider.
1: Which camp are you putting yourself into?
0: Well, I'm obviously old, but I've got a mortgage, so I'm not rate sensitive.
1: <laughs> so you can sympathise with both people. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> And just under a third, so about 30%, own their accommodation with a mortgage or a loan or shared ownership. And about a fifth rented, and just under a fifth were in the social rented sector. Now, for the rental market as well, that will be interest rate sensitive. And I've heard that there's huge competition in the rental market where people are actually offering to pay more than the rent which has been offered just to get the place. And that's pretty shocking. So buy-to-let markets are also being affected here. And a lot of the buy-to-let landlords are exiting that market because it just becomes unviable.
1: Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? They're exiting just at the time rents are going crazy, but it's because their borrowing costs are surging. And there's a lot of regulation that's come in over the last few years, which just makes it a bit of a nightmare to own buy-to-let. Not that I disagree with the regulation. So the rental market's going to be affected as well. But the really politically sensitive element at the moment is that third of the country who owns their house with a mortgage. So what are we seeing in the housing market right now? According to the Nationwide House Price Index, UK house prices are around 4% lower than their peak in August 2022 and have actually seen the fastest rate of decline in 14 years. We've also seen the number of transactions collapsing. So there were around 67,000 house purchases in April, which is down 30% compared to a year ago and is the lowest level since February 2013. Again, if you exclude the COVID era, when obviously the housing market was basically shut. And the third thing here to note is that mortgages are slowing down as well, as you'd expect with rates going up. So the Bank of England says that the number of mortgage approvals for house purchases dropped below 50,000 in April. And there are around 20% fewer mortgage approvals than just before the pandemic. So whatever stats you look at, the housing market's cooling. And we've said prices are 4% down from their peak. But that's in nominal terms. If you do it in real terms, it's well into double-digit declines already. I guess the question is, how bad is it going to get? Again, I'd fall back
0: on our really simple model. This is one of the trackers that we've got for PensionCraft members, which decomposes house prices into two things. One is the price-to-income ratio. So that's like a price-to-earnings ratio for stocks. It's a valuation measure. Usually, house prices are some multiple of earnings. And at the moment, it's still very elevated in the UK close to an all-time record. It has fallen a bit, but not a lot. And then you've got the wage growth component, and those are growing very rapidly in the UK. So that's a kind of positive for the housing market. But if we see a very strong mean reversion in that price-to-income ratio, which isn't impossible, then we could see the price-to-income ratio fall from around six and a half times to something like the long-term average, which is around four times. And that's a huge fall.
1: So that would be what, a 30, 40% fall?
0: Yeah. And so if we just see a kind of moderate mean reversion to something like five and a half times, that's the kind of central case for our model. Then we're talking about a much more modest fall of around 15, 16%. And I think that's much more likely.
1: Yeah, because that would be in nominal terms, right? So in real terms, you'd be looking at maybe 25, 30% fall, which seems about right instinctively when you're thinking about past house price crashes in the UK.
0: So if you combine those two things, reasonable wage growth and reversion to a kind of moderate price to income ratio, there you're looking at about a 12.5% fall over the course of each year for the next couple of years. That's pretty painful. Obviously, that's going to be painful for many people who have negative equity.
1: Because I've seen some people saying, oh, everyone's going overboard. Interest rates were like 13%. If you go back to the late 80s. Now they're only going to go up to 6%. You're all getting overexcited. But then Neil Hudson, who does some brilliant research on the UK property market, he's kind of calculated the effective interest rate controlling for lots of different factors because it's not comparing apples with apples when you look back to the 80s. For one, house prices, like you say, compared to incomes are way higher now. So small interest rate is much more of your disposable income. And also, back then, there were some schemes in the UK to be able to offset some of your mortgage payments against tax and things like this. But the upshot of all these calculations is that a 6% mortgage rate now is actually equivalent to the 13% rate in the 1980s. So maybe that's your rebuttal if you're a young person sick of hearing about avocado toast and all that from your parents and grandparents.
0: (laughs) 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 But the simple fact is house prices are too high. We had kind of an illusory wealth, an imaginary wealth, if you like, when interest rates were at zero. And we lived our lives accordingly and we borrowed accordingly. And now everything's got to re-rate downwards. And it's going to involve pain, there's no question. So I think that's one outcome, which is almost inevitable. A price-to-income ratio that comes down for house prices, how they manage it politically,
1: we'll just have to see. I mean, I know we're all obsessed with the housing market, but let's try and think of something else just to wrap up this episode. The big question on a macro level for the economy is, are we going to get a recession? Is the pain of interest rate rises going to cause GDP to start shrinking?
0: So the forecast of the Bank of England has actually been revised upwards in the May monetary policy report. Previously, they were expecting a long and shallow recession. Now what they're expecting is 0% growth in Q2 of 2023, 0.9% in 2024, 07 in 25, and 1.1% in
1: 26. So that's a pretty stagnant economy, but at least it's not shrinking is what they're saying. I mean, what do you think? I mean, the Bank of England's forecasts seem as good or bad as anyone's.
0: Well, they haven't revised it since we've got these higher inflation prints for core inflation. So I think that's going to probably make them revise it down again. I think what they reacted to previously was the fact that energy prices had fallen substantially.
1: And that usually causes a big problem for the UK economy because it's an input cost. But my instinct is that we're going to get a recession. Just it feels like it, but then feelings are really misleading in these kind of situations. I guess the counter argument to the feeling is that we've got a very tight labour market.
0: But what that means for the Bank of England is much worse as an entity, because what it means is that they're going to have to crush the economy with interest rates. If there's a tight labour market, the only way they can get inflation down is by increasing unemployment. And that means people are going to lose jobs. You know, a lot of people are going to lose jobs. Otherwise, wage growth won't fall. So they're going to be even more hated as an institution. So, I, you know, they're not going to see this as a positive. They're going to see this as a huge problem. And I think there probably will be a recession, which they have to create. It's just a question of how well they manage it. Will they overshoot? And I think that's unlikely, given what we've heard from some of the Monetary Policy Committee members. They are aware of the lag. They can see this structural change in the mortgage market. And they do care about, you know, suffering of people in the UK.
1: People might not think they do, but they do. There's a big question here about whether markets believe the Bank of England will see this through, isn't there? Are they credible? And it seems that they're just about hanging on to their credibility at the moment. So they can't take too many chances.
0: But they have to remain credible. Otherwise, if they aren't, then people will start budgeting for high inflation for much longer. And that makes it much more likely to become something that happens, a kind of
1: self-fulfilling prophecy. But long-term market expectations for UK inflation are a fair bit above 2% now. Far more so than the US for the Fed. The
0: Fed is much more credible.
1: There's been a lot of bad messaging from the Bank of England. There was the Hugh Pill stuff where it was reported as him saying people should accept they're poorer, which isn't quite what he said. But it's kind of true. (laughs) Well, okay, you're not going to get the job at the Bank of England then. But (laughs) but their messaging hasn't been great. So if you think we might get a recession, is that what will cause rates to fall? Are we just waiting for a recession before we might see some relief?
0: Yeah, I think that's a necessary thing to happen. For example, if you look at the favourite measure of a tight labour market in the US for Jerome Powell, it's a number of jobs which are available for every person who's unemployed. And in the US, that's still quite high. It's around one7 Now, in the UK, it's not as extreme. So it reached around one vacancy per person unemployed, and then it's fallen quite a bit since then. So it's now 0.8 vacancies per person unemployed. So it is less tight. It's getting looser, the UK labour market, but still very tight by historic standards, the highest it's ever been. Now, what makes that tightness reduce? It's always a recession, and that always comes with higher unemployment. Such a depressing thing to say, isn't it? Why does the world have to work this way? But this is the unfortunate thing with cycles, which is that, you know, eventually it causes pain. But you do have the kind of euphoric periods when everything's great. Of course, we never feel it when it is good. You only think it's good in retrospect.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, when was the last time it was great? It was great during the last decade. Was it though? A lot of people feel like it was stagnation. Real wage growth. There was none of it. It depends which
0: country you live in, I think. But for the UK, certainly for some people, I think it was pretty good. People who did have the wealth, who could invest in the stock market, who could buy housing, which was flattered hugely by zero interest rates. For them, it's been a brilliant decade. For young people, I think it's been a disaster. And for poor people,
1: also a disaster. I'm trying to think what the real peak was. I guess it was the period between the fall of the Berlin Wall and September 11th. (laughs) It's the 90s, basically. When I was a child was the best (laughs) times. I'm getting so old, I'm getting into nostalgia now. The summer of 76, that hot summer, that was the peak for me, probably. Was that the peak? I missed it. I was not even born.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, I mentioned that model, which looks at house prices in the UK and tries to project them into the future. If you're interested in getting access to that and all the other goodies that go with membership, like our chat application, so you can ask a question whenever you want but also our members-only videos, then just go to our website, PensionCraft.com.
1: Okay, today's dumb question of the week comes from one of our listeners, Edmund. And he asks, why do central banks raise interest rates incrementally rather than in one big jump? So to just read from his email, he says, Why are central banks pussyfooting around with 25 basis point rises, when we all know the terminal rate is going to need to be much higher? Put another way, why not just say, Bosh, here's a 400, 500 (laughs) basis point rise. It's what we'll ultimately need to tame inflation. Rip off the plaster and get inflation back under control. What do you think, Roman? Why have they done this slow hiking cycle when we could have just gone up to 4% interest rates a year ago? Going back to that nautical analogy, which of course I love to do, if you are moving around in the
0: fog, what you don't want is to move too fast because you don't know how far away the rocks are. Now, what are the rocks in this situation? If you raise rates by 400 basis points, remember that monetary policy operates with this lag now, which is very long, roughly two years. How do you know how much to raise interest rates? You don't. And every crisis is different. So you're a kind of unknown distance from the recession rocks. You don't want to move too quickly because if you do, you could actually hit the rocks and make the problem worse. You don't want to move too slowly. If you do, then inflation could get out of control. So 25 basis point moves, it's simply the compromise between those two. So there is a little bit of wait and see what happens. Although the Fed's been very aggressive this time around, with a five percentage point increase over the course of just over a
1: year. It's the fastest hiking cycle since the 70s, I think, in a long, long time. Yeah. I think the other thing, maybe, is that though they don't talk about this, Central banks kind of have to coordinate with each other around the world, or certainly with the Fed. You can't get too out of line with the Fed if you're a developed market economy. So you can't really just go 400 points up if the Fed's going in 0.25 or 0.5 increases, can you?
0: And that's the other point, which is it would create volatility in all sorts of markets. The currency markets, if your rate goes up four percentage points, nobody else's does, then your currency will hugely appreciate and create huge amounts of volatility. And that's a problem for people who are exporting, companies which are exporting. And then you've got the effect on the bond market, which would be fairly catastrophic. So I think there are all sorts of reasons why you kind of do it gradually rather than as one big shock.
1: Cowardice is the main one. <laughs> <laughs> but what's the biggest like, one-off interest rate rise we've ever had? Have we ever had a massive one? I mean, I know that on Black Wednesday in... September 1992 in the course of the day the Bank of England or the British government announced some crazy interest rate rises so at 10.30am they hiked from 10% to 12% this was to defend the pound and then they said it would go up later in the day to 15% so that would have been a 500 basis point rise in the day in the end they didn't actually do that second jump but they did 200 basis points in the day and promised more that was a big bosh yeah (laughs) But that
0: itself is a big shock to markets when central banks have to do something like that. The signal is we're out of control and that sends a negative signal for the whole economy. So it's all about signaling. As much as what you actually do with rates, there's a massive part of policy, which is what you kind of hint at and what
1: markets perceive you've hinted at. That's the bit of interest rate and monetary policy that I hate. I hate all the hinting. Oh, I love that. No, <laughs> I don't like this Fed speak thing where you get people on Twitter literally doing A and B comparisons of this month's notes from the Fed versus last month's like, oh, he changed the word may to might. What does that mean? <laughs> it shouldn't be done like that. That was
0: Nick Timras. I, I like those. And our economists used to do that at the bank. Yeah, it was interesting.
1: When the algorithm takes over monetary policy, it's not going to do any of this stuff. Yeah, but which algorithm? Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production co-hosted and executive produced by Robin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.